dear listener, or if I'm lucky, maybe listeners by this point, a girl can dream. Well, I'm back already, and the reason for that is I had a bit of a, a wizard wheeze as to something I can do with the podcast between chances to see my mum and record with her. Last week we had the reading from my good friend Bertie Wellen's body of work, Judith. I don't, did you hear that? My wrist cracked. Sorry, that's by the by. <clears throat> and, and Judith was sort of apt and on point with Listen With Mother because it was about a mum and uh, Judith is my mum's name. There the similarity, I think, ends. But I did think, you know, well, why not just carry on doing readings? And at this point, you may be thinking, oh, yes, Joe, but what about the copyright situation? And that's true. But one, this podcast is uh, an unpaid venture. And two, you know, there's plenty of stuff one can find that is not in copyright. And uh, you see, I used to have a little habit when I worked in an office that was um, in Norwich near the courthouses. I used to walk through Tombland every day. And there's a wonderful bookshop in there called the Tombland Bookshop. Uh, imaginative name. And it's in a 15th century building and has all sorts of second-hand and antique books. And when I was on flexi time and I could leave the office well before five o'clock sometimes because I'd clocked up my hours, I could sort of go and have a little late afternoon visit to Tombland Bookshop and they had a really nice humour section. And then they also had a stall out the front where they just had things cheap. And one thing I picked up from the stall out the front was an old leather-bound book called Organised Theatre by St. John Irvine, or Irvine, Irvine. And you may know that St. John Irvine was a playwright in the early 20th century, but he also wrote two books, I think, this organised theatre and another one, which was his thoughts on theatre. I picked that up and it struck me as quite funny. I'm not sure if he intended it to be funny, but it is funny. And I hope that my reading, the second reading I'll give you today, will help you understand why I find it funny. There's, shall we say, a certain pomposity and bombasticity of tone which comes across. And I think part of the reason why that is there is because the book was written after he'd given a series of lectures and it's more or less what he said in written form. The first reading I'm going to do is from a little book from the 1950s and I know that might slightly create a copyright problem but maybe not because it is called The Very Humorous Reciter and surely the whole point of a reciter is that you read the pieces out loud like what I will be doing. Most of the pieces in it, including the one I'm going to read, are anonymous, so... Now I have to say about the very humorous reciter, I perhaps didn't review the contents as carefully as I might have before I bought it, and on reviewing the content, I was a little bit aghast at the, um, shall we say, political insensitivity of some of the pieces. Some of them are downright offensive, actually. So I've had to sift very thoroughly through the detritus of the offensive 
bits to find something wholesome and uh, worth bringing to light. But, I mean, there, there are some nice little pieces and the one I've chosen I think is nice and and it is called The Story of a Bedstead. It was night. The boarding house was wrapped in tenebrous gloom, faintly tinted with an odour of kerosene. Suddenly, there arose on the air a yell, followed by wild objurgations and furious anathemas. Then, there was a clanking and rattling, as of an overturned picket fence, and another yell, with more anathemas. The fatted boarders listened, and, ghostly clad, tiptoed along to Buffum's room, he of Buffum and Bird, second-hand furniture dealers. As they stood there, there was a whiz, a grinding, a rattling, and a bang, and more yells. They consulted and knocked on the door. Come in! Open it! I can't! Convinced that Buffum was in his last agony, they knocked in the door with a bedpost. The sight was ghastly. Clasped between two sturdy though slender frames of walnut, Buffum, pale as a ghost, was six feet up in the air. He couldn't move. He was caught like a bear in a log trap. What, what on earth, earth is, is it? They said. Bedstead! Combination! New patent I was telling you about! Gasped Buffum. His story was simple, though tearful. He had brought it home that day and after using it for a writing desk had opened it out and made his bed. He was going peacefully to dreamland when he rolled over and accidentally touched a spring. The faithful invention immediately became a double crib and turned Buffum into a squalling wafer. Then he struggled and was reaching around for the spring when the patent bedstead thought it would show off some more and straightened out and shot up in the air and was a clothes horse. Buffum said he didn't like to be clothes and he would give the thing to anybody that would get him out. They said they would try. They didn't want any such fire extinguisher as that for their trouble, but they would try. They inspected it cautiously. They walked all around it. Then the commission merchant laid his little finger on the top end of it. The thing snorted and reared as if it had been shot, slapped over with a bang and became an extension table for ten people. When they recovered from the panic, they came back. They found the commission merchant in the corner, trying to get breath enough to swear while he rubbed his shins. Buffum had disappeared, but they knew he had not gone far. The invention appeared to have taken fancy to him and incorporated him into the firm, so to speak. He was down underneath, straddling one of the legs, with his head jammed into the mattress. Nobody dared to touch it. The landlady got a club and reached for its vital parts, but could not find them. 
she hammered her breath away. And when she got through and dropped the club in despair, the thing swung out its arms with a gasp and a rattle, turned over twice and slapped itself into a bed again, with Buffum peacefully among the sheets. He held his breath for a minute and then, watching his opportunity, made a flying leap to the floor just in time to save himself from being a folding screen. A man with a black eye and a cut lip told the editor about it yesterday. He said he had bought the patent and Buffum had been explaining to him how it worked. One, I. I propose in this book to make a plea for an organised theatre. But I shall not confine myself to that plea, for a theatre is merely a machine whose work depends upon the capacity of those by whom it is owned and operated. My plea indeed will be for such a theatre, but it will include the much more important demand for an intelligent audience. A theatre owned by the community will not be much, if any, better than the general taste of the community permits it to be, although it is likely, I think, to be better than the privately owned or, as it is sometimes called, commercially owned theatre, where the quality of the place produced has a tendency in bad times to descend to the gutter. An audience of half-wits will not accept anything but a half-witted drama, nor will a man with a chu-chin-chow mind easily be persuaded to patronise any other than chu-chin-chow plays. It is useless, therefore, to complain of the dramatists and the managers when the persons at fault are the playgoers themselves. In vain does the dramatist write and the manager produce plays which are neither vulgar nor soporific nor outrageous to the understanding when the audience is mainly composed of people who are vulgar or half asleep or empty-minded. The inexorable fact of finance will speedily cure the manager, though not so speedily the dramatist, of that vanity, and when he discovers that he can make a profit or pay his way only by producing plays which are close to the level of his patron's intelligence, he will not be long in abandoning any intention he may have of raising the tone of the drama in order that he may raise the wind even if the wind comes from the east and smells vilely. It might be argued, though I doubt if the argument be sound, that a manager could improve the public taste by producing plays slightly above it, but that argument is maintainable only on the assumption that the manager wishes to improve the public taste and that he can dip his hand very deeply into his own or someone else's pocket. 
Those who are desirous of leaving an institution better than they found it must be prepared to pay for their pleasure. The public refuses to be improved at its own expense and will only agree to be improved, when it agrees at all, after someone has spent his life or his fortune in the effort. The history of progress is the history of the heart-rending attempts made by determined individuals to overcome the sloth and opposition of multitudes obstinately resolved not to have any progress at all. And no one who is not ready to suffer and even to die of discouragement the one form of fatal disease which afflicted the he ancients and the she ancients in Mr Shaw's Back to Methuselah, can ever hope to earn the misery and renown which is the reward of all those who have not left the world worse than they found it. Let there be no doubt about this. Popular favour is not commonly given to reformers, except posthumously, or when the receivers are too old and worn to derive any pleasure from it. They may be stoned. They will certainly be derided and offensively described. The best that will be hurled at them will be such devastating names as cranks, highbrows, superior persons and prigs. They may even be called Idealists, a word used synonymically by Lord Birkenhead for idiots. They will be asked why they are so solemn and be accused of pontificating. No one will ever call them jolly good fellows for the reason, perhaps, that they seldom are jolly good fellows nor will they be praised for their felicitous style and charming manners. But charm of manners is more characteristic of the insincere than of the sincere, and is more commonly found in a Nero than in a John the Baptist. The Borgias could only have induced their guests to sit down to dinner with them by cultivating a charming demeanour which is rarely possessed by more virtuous persons. The reformer, therefore, must be prepared to forego grace when grace gets in the way of his desire. He will do well to keep his temper and to develop his sense of humour, if he has any, and to think of himself occasionally as one fool among many fools, and to remember that he is not the final repository of the world's wisdom." but he can never hope to fulfil his desire if he spends his time in getting a reputation for charm and jolly good fellowship. Obstacles do not like to be removed, but they have got to be removed. And that, roughly speaking, is all there is to it. This book, then, will not waste time in being polite to persons who are not entitled to politeness. A villain will be described as a villain. A profiteer will not be called an entrepreneur. And what blows are to be dealt will be dealt as vigorously as possible. I pray that I may be able to take blows with as much fortitude as I deliver them. If there are 
any signs of arrogance in what follows, and I seem to make claims to an authority which I cannot substantiate, I beg only this of the reader. First, that he believe that the signs of arrogance are not deliberately displayed and are a defect of my manners, of which I am not always aware. Second, that he disregards the manner and has heed only to the matter. And third, that he believe that no one realises so fully as I do that my claims to authority are disputable. I have tried, however, to say what I have to say about the theatre with as much validity as I can, and there I leave the matter. What I have to say here will primarily be about the English theatre, because that is the theatre with which I have the greatest familiarity, but it is possible that many of the things which may truly be said of it may also be truly said of other theatres, especially in America, and if I seem at times to wander very far from the immediate subject of discussion, I shall retort to the complainers that my digressions are deliberate. My purpose in doing so may not be as clear to my complainers as it is to me, which is very likely, but if they will bear with me, they will, I think, find that my wanderings are not entirely without point. So, that was the first chapter of Organised Theatre, and uh, many themes in that, I think, that resonate with us still today, which is interesting, a hundred years on. If you enjoyed that reading in particular, and want to know what St. John Irving proposed we do about this parlous state of affairs, please let me know, and then I can maybe read you more which would be fun. I really would like feedback on this podcast. Constructive, please. I mean, if it isn't good feedback, at least it could be helpful. That would be nice. Being rude won't help me. <laughs> um, yeah, and just if you like my readings in general, you know, I, I can do more. I have more books. <laughs> so, yeah, let me, let me know. That would be nice. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.